Hello, Jews and others who might be atoning this season. And who are we kidding? Everyone needs to do some atoning. This is Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week by senior writer Leah Leibowitz. I'm so sorry. <laughs> just just in general. For everything. Just in general. Everything ever said or done. If I offended you, listeners, I'm, I apologize. <laughs> Sincerely. <laughs> you should actually, they send us notes telling us how we do. do all the time, say how we've offended them, and we, we apologize. Uh, we will be joined by Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick, but she is on location for a segment that we will be doing later in this show. This is our second annual Yom Kippur Apology Show. We're going to talk about the Jewish tradition of using this time of year, this time for new beginnings, uh, to atone with people whom we have wronged or who have wronged us or who may feel that we've wronged and people we want to get right with. Uh, we will be joined by a terrific uh, group of guests. We have four segments today, and all of us are going to talk about how to atone with the people whom we love. Uh, the first of these guests is Marjorie Ingle. Marjorie is a writer for Tablet Magazine and also the author of Mamala Knows Best. Is there a subtitle? I forget. I have not memorized my own subtitle. Your subtitle is like How Jews Raise Superior Children or something? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mama knows best. It's, it's, but you came up with the title. I did. Thank you. I did come up with the title. She she was working on this book for how many years? Five years? Six, shut up. So a lot of years about Jewish... <laughs> that was the title I suggested. <laughs> shut, shut, up. Up. shut up. Shut up. How to Raise Good Children. Get back in your box. <laughs> That's the sequel. When Mama doesn't know best, just shut up. Yeah. Shut up. Um and uh, she's working on this book about Jewish parenting, mothering for a lot of years. And she was looking for a title. And I, I just, I had an inspiration. Mamala knows best. It's been getting a lot of attention and everyone should go read it. But in another life, um, to really pull in the big box, she runs a blog. <laughs> like, to really mint money, she runs a blog called <sighs> Sorry Watch, which is online at sorrywatch.com. Com? You got the com. Oh, I got the com. You got the com. All right. Um and it's a uh, a blog that takes a look at apologies in public culture, celebrities, politicians, uh, corporate raiders, others who apologize, and also history and literature. And in history and literature. Yes. So anyway, Marjorie was here last year talking about um, how to apologize. And today I wanted to go through that again because we are nothing if not service oriented. We want to help people know how to apologize. But but then we're going to do a roundup of the year's best and worst apologies from uh, her Sorry Watch blog. So let's start, Marjorie, with the question of how do you give a good apology? Where do you even begin? Okay. Uh, so first we should say it is not just my blog. It is also my friend Susan McCarthy, who is a yeah, writer. Yeah, but I've never met We're her. so sorry, Susan <laughs> McCarthy. We apologize. <laughs> Fine. I'm Fine. sorry um, if you were offended, Susan McCarthy. That's how you apologize, right? Yeah, you that's totally an awesome, someone. awesome In that apology. voice, in that yeah. use of a, right. yeah, oh, I'm so and, sorry. Exactly. You have to have one corner of your mouth curled I'm up. sorry that you don't have a sense um, of humor. I'm <laughs> sorry for that's you. That's right. We, we actually have a bingo card on the site of the elements of a terrible apology, like when you say, use the passive voice. Right. When you say um, mis the word misunderstood, all right. that. Um, I'm sorry, you're so sensitive that exactly. you took offense at the normal thing I said. As much as as Marjorie and I enjoy you know sparring with one another, I'm actually really happy to have her in my life because I am a hundred percent certain that at some point, pretty soon, I'm going to have to apologize in a pretty major way for something that I say or do, <laughs> and I'm just going to email her, and be like, uh, "Can you yep. write this for me, yep, please?" Pretty much. Are you allowed to Cyrano de Bergerac your apologies? Or are yeah. you allowed to have other people uh, ghost yeah, write them? One because our... you've also worked as a ghostwriter, so I wonder. <laughs> One of to... our most popular posts, which was written by Susan, was about a camp at Burning Man called Plyopology, which is where you can go at Burning Man when you've done something horrible, like take someone's bike and then ride it without pants on. and um, <laughs> Like, like and... defecate on their campsite after having LSD sex with their 
wife. That's exactly what Burning Man is yeah. like. Thank you, Mark. Um, so, but they will you help have... you craft an apology. I think it's fine to get help on an apology, but you have to be the one who delivers it. There must be a, there's a business, there's an app there for that. There has to be an app for that. There's, oh, an, app. there's, totally <laughs> there's an app for that. Yeah. All right. So, so the so. first thing you got to do for a good apology is n- n- you have to use the words, I'm sorry. Regret, not good. Regret is about how you feel. Sorry is about how somebody else feels, you know, about making sure somebody else is okay. Um, you have to name the thing you did wrong, not what happened or my role in that. Um, I regret my role in your hurt feelings. How, exactly. so hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Let's, I, I want to slow this down because this words matter, Marjorie. Can we they put on do, some slow Leo. music, some slow uh, groove music? <laughs> so so say, um, say I'm a certain, I, I just, I just want to get this right. I, how graphic do you have to be? Say I'm a, I'm a certain former congressman from the great state of New York, and I'm apologizing. Uh, what do, what well, do I so, say? Well, first of all, some things really are unforgivable. Sorry, I took photos of my dick with my baby lying next to me. Like, how detailed are we uh, getting here? He was wearing. Uh, wasn't he wearing? Uh, yes, he was wearing briefs under, underpants. <laughs> Okay, uh, apologies are not time machines, and apologies are not miracles. So no, but th- I'm asking in earnest. Like, how? What? What leeway do I have here with the okay. euphemisms? So my my point is that uh, some things are unforgivable, and I think you know at this point, Wiener is there's nothing he can say. Um, but if you were to try to apologize, let's say it was just one incident that he showed bad judgment. I'm trying to think of what I would actually say in that case. Yeah, you, and again, you be, I'm you be so, the Wiener. I'll be the Wiener. Um, and let's set the scene here. Like, so he's done this about four times now to well, Huma. That's, that's what I'm he saying. He should stop apologizing. He's right? got to he, stop. His, his words are worthless. He shouldn't right. come to her the fourth time. Be like, oh, I'm, I'm totally not going to do it again. At that point, he's insulting her by apologizing. And he's right? insulting all of us because well, he doesn't owe us anything. He owes her an apology. I think. Right? I think somebody. Who, I think any public figure owes. He does owe us something. Okay. Um, so he that he's just not a, a person in I private would like life. to see Marjorie channel Anthony Weiner. Go uh, ahead. Okay. <laughs> Um, I am so sorry. I showed terrible judgment by taking a photo of myself in a compromising position with my kid in the room. I also showed my dick. And I showed my <laughs> dick. Um, Yesterday yeah. I showed both terrible so, judgment and my penis. And my penis. So, <laughs> exactly. Uh, you have to show that you understand that your actions have an impact on others and what that impact is. So you have to say, you know, you know that Huma was mortified or i mean again this is a dumb example because he needs to go away and stop talking he needs to go atone so he needs to go work with the poor inconspicuously for no credit far away far for many years for many years yeah but visit his son i think his punishment should be we should just appoint a mayor for the next eight years (laughs) i think that's the worst thing and i think (laughs) he'd be good at it do you remember he would be a good he would be a good mayor he'd be amazing mayor and it's a punishment the documentary in this guy have you guys seen the documentary not yet it's astonishingly good and one of the things you see is he's such a gifted politician well do you remember he's so gifted he loves people he's an extrovert he's smart he has command of the of the details he i mean he's amazing do you remember when he used to be on john stewart all the time before he you know before his fall from grace he was a brilliant guest and you could see his devotion to politics that type is so crazy so crazy so crazy okay so you say I'm sorry. You name the thing you did. Yes. You show that you understand that your actions had an impact on others and what that impact is. Right. When I lay on the bed with... I'm sorry that I lay on the bed with my son and the outline of my phallus because it humiliated you 
Yes. Yet it, again. It will humiliate my child for all eternity. Um, and <laughs> my child who will change his last name soon, as soon as he's legally as, able. Exactly. <laughs> and you have to try to explain how this won't happen again, which is where anything Wiener says will just fall apart because we, it's happened four times. Why is it not going to happen again? So normal human beings would say, I am in therapy. I am, you know, studying sex offenders, right. <laughs> whatever. And you have to make amends. Um, but I wanted to say that there was actually, since our last show, there was a, a big study of effective apologies um, in uh, negotiation and conflict management research, which is a, a business journal. One, one of your favorite. <laughs> it's so good. It's either that or Twilight. Okay. So the elements of apology that these researchers found essential were an expression of regret, an explanation of what went wrong, an acknowledgement of responsibility, which they thought was the single most important element, a declaration of repentance. And what was the last one? Uh, the last one was... A big, smooshy hug. Yeah. Offer of repair and request for forgiveness, which is actually, which was the least important and which we feel at Sorry Watch, you should not do. You do not ask to be forgiven. Leave it up to them. That is their, that is a gift for them to offer, not for you to ask for. And it's the equivalent of let's move on, which is a terrible thing to say <laughs> all the time. Uh, that's not your call. I will say that as somebody who does not, I mean... I have many flaws, but one of my virtues, I like to think, is I don't carry grudges. I don't even remember what people did to me. I mean, I literally have had people in my life who have wondered, have I forgiven them? And I have no memory of what the it is. The things you don't even like, remember they so, did. They're still traumatized by how they wronged me six months ago, a year ago, 10 years ago. I have no idea. I, I live so much in the present, for better and for worse, that I simply am not capable of carrying a I, grudge. I would attest to that. Would you attest to that? Absolutely. And, and so, you know, one of my... Um, problems is that I expect other people to be the same way. I'm like, what? That was so last week when I, you know, punched you in the face and knocked out your dental work. Like, what, you're still on that? And I realized some people really, like, they just can't get over it. It's a balance, right? Because there's that that Buddha line about carrying anger is like holding on to a hot coal, wanting to throw it else, at someone else, but you're the one who gets burned. Um, Whoa. Yeah, right? Yeah. So deep. Um, but it's true, like to some degree. I believe Emma Watson said that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's on a t-shirt with Emma Watson at the bottom. <laughs> um, so you you worked on a list for us. Top apologies of the year, best, worst. What do you, what do you got for us today? Okay, I got a famous person for you. Um, do you remember when Johnny Depp and okay. Amber now Heard... Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Okay, yes. I'm, 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 I'm throwing you this bone. Okay. Thank you. Um, when they... Me and the rest of you know. When they, America. <laughs> right. When they illicitly brought their dogs into Australia. Do you I remember do, that this? that was the funniest video in the world. It was... So they made like this hostage video. They did. It was like a combination of a hostage video and like a fourth grade book report. Australia is a wonderful island with a treasure trove of unique plants, animals, and people. It has to be protected. Australia is free of many pests and diseases that are commonplace around the world. That is why Australia has to have such strong biosecurity laws. And Australians are just as unique, both warm and direct. When you disrespect Australian law, they will tell you firmly. I am truly sorry that Pistol and Boo were not declared. Protecting Australia is important. Declare everything when you enter Australia. It was so clearly given under duress and they were they were eye rolling throughout the whole thing. So their apology um, for sneaking their dogs in was they had to do a public a PSA yes, for Australia. That was what Australia wanted, <laughs> um, which is really good because Australia did have the right to put those dogs to sleep. So they should be glad that all they all Australia wanted was a public apology. Um, best apology, sure, was a wedding at the Western Reserve Historical Society in Cleveland. 
During picture-taking, the bride's sister steps away for a moment to breastfeed her child. I think you know where this is going. Oh, yeah. Uh, a museum employee comes up to her and says, you aren't allowed to do that yep, in she here. she was busted for breastfeeding. Yes. Yep. And then rebusted for breastfeeding at, by the manager after saying, no, I actually do have a legal right to do this. The manager says, this is a family museum. She says, I am feeding my family. Um, <laughs> I'm not feeding some weird fetish guy who came over and went to suck on my boob. Right. I'm actually feeding my child. Exactly. So she put the woman posts on Facebook. Um, there is an outcry. The History Center's director posted on Facebook saying, we are a family museum and do not, in fact, have a policy against breastfeeding at the museum. We are sorry that the misinformation of a few staff members created such a negative experience. We do not have, nor have we ever had a policy that prohibits a mother from feeding her child. We have contacted the mother directly and issued an apology, which she has accepted. We do not condone the incident and are taking steps to retrain our entire staff. And they are, she said later on in a second apology, she says, we want to provide a welcoming environment for all of our patrons, including breastfeeding mothers. We did not live up to that goal in this instance. Nice. Nice. So nice. first of all, it's a public apology that was preceded by a private apology, which yes. most people forget. Most yes. public apologies, they only are grandstanding. Right. You don't like a press release does not substitute for going to the actual person privately. Correct. That's what my wife keeps saying. <laughs> I don't understand it. Enough apologizing on unorthodox, like, Liel. I, I put you, it on PR wire. What do you want? <laughs> I also love that she reclaimed the word breast, the word family. That yes, we are a family museum. Yeah. So saying yeah. that she understood the woman's perspective. Right. Family museum does not mean we are like sanitized by the Christian right for your children. It means children can feed. Yes. Yes. All right, so, Marjorie. Yeah. That's a lovely example, and and yeah, I'm I'm, I'm down with it. But um, I read your blog routinely. Uh, I love it. And one of the things that I love about it is that probably one time out of, say, three, I read the apology and I ask myself, wait a minute, what is going on here? What are people apologizing for? It seems to me that there is such a pervasive culture of outrage and demanding apology that stems from the god-awful politically correct culture that you condone and fuel does apology even mean anything when everyone seems to be offended by pretty much everything? I object to the term politically correct. Well, okay. And I would argue that the right is just as eager to demand apologies because everything, what I would say is different, is that everything is performative now. That everything happens but on But that's what I'm saying. Does it even, does it even matter anymore? Because everything is like this huge, shitty show for Yes, I wanted, to I wanted to correct you first about saying this is somehow coming from the left because the, the left I mean, and if, the right demand if, apologies. If we're being honest, this is a huge culture of quote-unquote progressive or regressive uh, you know, rotting liberalism. And the people but who are demanding that Colin Kaepernick or however you say his name apologize, uh, that's also coming from the left? Uh, right, but that's not Yeah, the victimology, for, the right has has fully learned how to got, use the victim I am rhetoric. not saying that the right doesn't, but I'm saying this is a big, big problem. Moving along, however, <laughs> I am... You're the host, so I'm, I'm going to let interested. you get away with this. I, I really wanted to drill down on this. So, so how would you draw the line where the kind of like fault line of responsibility lies. Like at, at what point do you look at an apology and be like, you know what, I actually didn't do anything bad, even if a lot of people were offended. You know what? I say shit on the air every week. People get, you know, outraged. All right. My feeling is if you don't think the thing that you did warrants an apology, don't apologize. Better to not apologize than to offer a shitty, half-hearted, sarcastic, 
you know, upper lip curled apology. And you don't apologize for who you no. are. So great. But you know, the if pro- you're raising children, sometimes you make them apologize. We're in agreement you, on that, right? We absolutely are. Other, pe- learn... other people don't agree. that. You but know, you that... and I are right about this because they have to learn the muscle of saying it. Exactly. They have to, you have to sometimes do things you don't want to do. Exactly. Right. That is part of the responsibility of parenting. All right. Before we go. Justin Bieber, what role did he play in Apologies in 5776? <laughs> I thought it was interesting that there were two apology songs, two songs called Sorry this year. One, Beyonce. Beyonce and Bieber. And Bieber, uh, typically, I think this this says so much. Typically Bieber's, the man, mansplained the apology. Are you familiar with the Bieber song? Of course I am. Oh my God. Do you know um, why? No. Because the head of the global um, Justin Bieber fan club uh, has my same first name. And since my Twitter handle is at Liel, I get about 300 <laughs> Justin Bieber references a month. And so I know a lot. Oh, Plus, Lord. I like the Biebs. I got oh, I to be pretty oh, honest. I'm, I'm a Biebs. believer. So oh, Bieber and Beyonce. Yes. And so I love that Beyonce's sorry is like, I am so not sorry. And Bieber's is, I'm sorry and I'm apologizing really, really crappily. <laughs> It says so much. May 5777 be the best year ever for apologies. Marjorie Ingle, author of Mama Leno's Best and co-author of the blog SorryWatch.com, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Is it too late now to say sorry? Because I'm missing more than just your body. Our next guest on this special Yom Kippur edition of Unorthodox is Richard Cellini, who is the founder of the Georgetown Memory Project. He's pretty much the force behind the recent decision of Georgetown University to grant preferential admission to descendants of the slaves it sold in 1838 to save the school from financial default. Richard joins us on the phone from Boston. Richard, good morning. Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, thanks so much for being here. So we're talking about the Jewish tradition of atonement, which is very, very important for us at, at this time of year, at uh, at the new year. And that's really, I think, exactly what you guys are doing with the Memory Project. Could you tell us what the project is and, uh, and how you came up with it? Sure. As you know, uh, Georgetown University uh, owned a large number of slaves in the first half of the 19th century. And in 1838, to rescue the university from uh, near certain financial catastrophe, Georgetown sold 272 enslaved people, men, women, and children, to plantations in Louisiana. The Georgetown Memory Project was founded to identify and locate those 272 people and then trace and find and contact their living descendants. Okay, how are you doing that? How do you find out who the 272 people are? Were there registers? Do we know their names? I mean, that sounds pretty much impossible. Well, that's you know that's an interesting point. Um, it, it it turns out to be eminently possible. Nobody in 175 plus years has ever gone looking. But once we did, uh, we found out that it is indeed possible to trace these people. Of the 272 uh, people sold to Louisiana. In 1838, the Georgetown Memory Project has now identified and 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 fully documented 209 of them. Oh, wow. 
there's nothing wrong with the other 60. We'll find them. It just takes time and effort. Okay, how but, do you find uh, them? How, how, do you, how do you go about looking for somebody whose ancestor, you know, whose five times great-grandfather or grandmother was sold in, in 1838? Yeah, lo- lots of hard uh, work in the archives and churches of uh, southern Louisiana. Uh, the the uh, enslaved people actually did have names, first and last names. They had marriages, baptisms, um, uh, weddings, funerals, and all of that information is in the public record in um, the uh, counties uh, known as parishes of southern Louisiana and also in the archdiocese. So I hired a group of 10 genealogists who do nothing but um, uh, search for documentary evidence about these 272 individuals. And how much buy-in did you have from Georgetown at, when you started this project? I mean, w- when you contacted, you know, President DeJoya or whoever you contacted there, did they say, great, and kind of roll their eyes and think this Cellini guy is insane? Or did they say, yeah, let's find them? Well, you know, I got involved in this because in November of 2015, I reached out to a very senior member of Georgetown University who was uh, a member of uh, Georgetown's working group on slavery, memory, and reconciliation. And I said, my question is, what happened to the 272 people? You know, because everything was focused on other things. It was mostly very focused on Georgetown. And I was like, well, let's talk about the people. And I got an email back. He he didn't have to write to me, but he did. But he said, Richard, Georgetown looked into this a couple of years ago. And what we discovered was that all 272 immediately succumbed to a fever in the malodorous swamp world of Louisiana. Uh, They're all gone. They all died. And they left no trace and no descendants. So there's no point in going uh, to look for them. Georgetown, the cover-up is always worse than the crime. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, what you're hearing there, I I think what's remarkable about that statement is not that it was told to me uh, by somebody who knew it to be false. I think what's remarkable is that it was told to me by somebody who believed it to be true. I I think you're hearing the authentic voice of 175 years of Georgetown just making itself feel better. Honestly, it wasn't until this landed on the front page above the fold of the New York Times on Sunday, April 16th, 2016, that the university took notice. I mean, much as I love Georgetown, the truth is Georgetown and Georgetown alumni only believe something is true when they read it on the front page of the New York Times. That's exactly when Leo Leibowitz believes that it's true, right, Leo? <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, could you tell us the story uh, that we heard you had about the 26-year-old woman who had heard stories from her grandmother? Yes. Uh, she's a neighbor of mine. I'm uh, here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, two blocks from Harvard University. Uh, her name is Melissa, and uh, she is a Ph.D. in evolutionary biology and a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard University. Uh, she is from Maryland, which is where the... Um, Georgetown slaves were originally living and working before they were uh, sent to Louisiana. Most of them were sent to Louisiana, but some of them escaped in 1838 uh, into the woods uh, when the slave ships came. Um, She's descended from uh, some individuals who escaped. But when she was a girl, which was not very long ago, we're talking about maybe the late 1990s here, uh, she was raised on stories from her grandmother that one day men with ships and dogs came to take our family away. And most of our family got on the ships, but some ran into the woods. And she was told as a girl that... um, 
they were chased for days without food and water by the men with the dogs. And finally, the men and the dogs and the ship went away, but they still stayed in the woods because they were afraid. And then finally, a priest, she told me, this is all family lore, named Father Carberry came into the woods and said it was safe to come out. And she's telling me this in near tears. And she said, this is a story we were told, but we have no idea if it's true. And I said, Melissa, it's 100% true. It's all documented on the Georgetown side, all the way down to the name of the priest. The priest was Father Joseph P. Carberry. He was the priest who came into the woods and found your family and told them that it was safe to come out. And, and this is a story. You know, when people say the past is the past, not for Melissa's family. You know, it's, it's the present. In fact, it, it sort of defines the future. Uh, this is a story that was told to her and her smaller sister um, in the past uh, 10, 15, 20 years. Like, like during, during the Clinton years, they were still hearing accurate versions of this, of this story. Correct. And her little sister would turn to Melissa and say, Melissa, is this true? Did this happen to our family? Did this happen to us? And Melissa, wide-eyed, said, yes, it did. This is real. This happened to our family. So this is a story that has been passed down. The only bit of family history that got garbled was that uh, the family was told that the uh, relatives who got on the ship were taken to Algeria or Algiers. And she said, you know, Richard, I heard they were taken to Algeria or Algiers, and we've been searching in Algeria for our family, but it doesn't make any sense. We can't find them. I said, well, I said, it's close. They were taken to Algiers Parish, New Orleans. Oh it's a God. very old African-American parish. That's where the ship docked. So, so that part is true. It's just, it's just been garbled. So that, that's how close uh, the connection is historically to these events. So when people say, oh, the past is the past, not so. <laughs> not for these families. So um, Georgetown University is now going to give some sort of preferential treatment in admissions to descendants of these families. It, it, I guess two questions then. Um, one is, does this really open up the idea of um, actually being able to give reparations to people who are actually descended from slaves? Because one of the critiques of the reparations movement is, well, how will you ever know who was really descended from a slave versus who was descended from a free black or who was descended from a West Indian who came over in 1900 or whatever? This seems to suggest, wait, we could actually do a pretty good job of, of figuring this out. And, and then my second question would be, um, is that how we should be doing reparations for the descendants of slave is through, is through legacy preference and admissions, which by the way, for all I know, I got, I went to the same college that my dad went to and we're, you know, we're white dudes. Right. Oh, well, let me take the first question first. Um, it is eminently possible to identify, um, many, 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 uh, individuals who are enslaved and then trace their living descendants. There are a bunch of myths that are just simply not true, that myths like they had no names, and if they had names, they were nicknames, and they didn't have last names, and that they, they didn't get properly married, and if they did, they didn't stay married, and if they did, their children weren't registered. None of that is true. But, but here's what is true. History only answers the questions we ask of her. If we don't ask, she won't tell. She doesn't come up to us on the sidewalk and grab us by the lapels and shake us and say, there's something important you need to know. We have to ask history for this information, and history will readily give it up to us. But the, the shortage here is not a shortage of information or documentation. It's a shortage of imagination, curiosity, and willingness. 
So yes, we can find not only the enslaved people, we can find their modern descendants. On the topic of reparations, you know, uh, I've spoken with dozens and dozens and dozens of descendants of the Georgetown slaves. They are not in, interested in individual reparations. What they are interested in is co-investments in a shared future. Um, they, the only thing that makes sense of their ancestors' sacrifice is to partner with all people of goodwill and make investments in a common good that is based on racial reconciliation and healing. That's what makes sense to them, and that's what they're pursuing. And, you know, we can do that on a public basis through uh, government, or we can do it on a private basis, which is what Georgetown is doing. And uh, I commend Georgetown for, you know, it's not adequate. Uh, it's not sufficient, but it is a necessary first step to at least recognize these individuals as members of the Georgetown family and um, begin to engage in them in a shared future, if you see what I'm saying. Richard Cellini of the Georgetown Memory Project. You have a website, right? I do, yes. It's the georgetownmemoryproject.org. Good luck with the project, and we'll talk to you again sometime. Thanks for having me on. Bye-bye. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. For our next guest, we have a very, very, very special guest. It is Devorah Telushkin, who is the mother of our new producer, Shira Telushkin. When we were talking about this episode, we said, well, Shira, you know, last year we did this amazing apology episode for Yom Kippur, and we want to do another one, and we want to talk to people who are really interested in atonement and apology. And she said, okay, well, you have to talk to my mom. And we said, why? Proving once again, this is a very Jewish show. That's right. She said, my mom is like one of the all-time great apologizers. She said she's one of six children, and they have a monthly conference call to to basically see if anyone has hurt anyone else or if they're all okay with each other. But apparently you are a champion apologizer, Devorah Tulushkin, who joins us uh, from, (laughs) where are you, Boca? Where are you right now? Oh, I'm right now. I'm here visiting... My sister, who just had her second grandson. And where is that? Where are you, where are you visiting? This her? is in West, West Palm Beach, Florida. West Palm Beach. Okay, well, thank you for joining us. Uh, Happy New Year to you. And Happy New Year. Tell us about this conference call you have with your sisters. They say you're supposed to forgive on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. problem is we have to first know who hurt us and what exactly and how they hurt us. And they first have to go to the person who hurt you, and you have to tell them. Often when you tell somebody that they've hurt you, they will usually at that point be, first of all, surprised 
They don't even realize that they've hurt you, and they'll usually apologize. And then at that point, once they apologize to you, then you can forgive them. And that's the piece everybody forgets. You can't just go right to the forgiveness because then it won't have that feeling of like a weight being lifted off your heart. So you have to keep tally of the offenses. I like that a lot. There should be an app for that. In, in the Karlbach school, there's a woman named Hadassah Karlbach. And she said you have to do is what, what they call the haroset um, sandwich. In, in the Passover Seder, they will have a sandwich where you have um, the first layer is haroset, which is very sweet. And in the middle, there's one little tiny strip, you know, of, of something, a bitter something bitter, and at, and at the bottom of the sandwich is another big layer of a sweet, like apple and honey kind of kind of a mixture. And what you do when you, when you go to someone who you tell them that they've hurt you, you do a haroset sandwich. So first you tell them how much you love them and how deep the friendship is. And then you say the one little strip, it's like, you know, if you think of horseradish, it's like one tiny thin slip of horseradish. And you say, but, you know, last, you know, three months ago, you said this to me at the table. And it, it hurt me deeply. It went, it went very deep. I, I can't forget that. I just want to let you know how much you've hurt me. And then you end with another big glob of sweetness, you know, that you so value this friendship you'd like to have that's like giving feedback it's like giving feedback to writers when you're an editor it's like you start by saying this piece is going to be fabulous then you say Mm -hmm. here's some little things you could do to change it and then you end by saying but it's going to be great after you do that I was about to say it's like talking to millennials because it's in my family's like no, <laughs> your the sandwich like, is pretty much like there's just a the lot frozen. of bitter thing, <laughs> and then maybe you know once every three and well, then years. The, main, the, the thing that I've seen is that when you give the haroset sandwich, all of a sudden, like a number of times, it's happened to me where the person cries. I, say, I had no idea I said such a thing. Then you can say I forgive you, and then the forgiveness is wholehearted. So you guys have have monthly conference calls to to do this process. Because my sister, we have three sisters, I'm the, so there's four of us together. My oldest sister's a rabbi in L.A., and she is the one who said, let's, let's make sure we maintain this. And she said, always says to us, are we current? And if we're not current, well, then you, you have to review, well, what did somebody say? So Yom Kippur for you is just like another Wednesday, right? I mean, you, you do this. Because you're all, you're all up to date. Yeah. So that's with my sisters, yes. And then uh, I, I haven't done that with other people, but you certainly the, the most, the closest people to us, we don't even realize how much we hurt the people who are closest to us. And if they, if they would have the courage to tell us, we would probably be so surprised. And the, the, most, the saddest part of it is that these things, uh, people, they sound small. But these are the things that people carry with them. These are the heaviest burdens. So what's your advice for the coming new year for people who have something on their heart and, and are trying to apologize? Do you have any, do you have a toolkit? You have to go to someone who's hurt your feelings, even if it sounds petty. Go and teach them, but do it like a corrosive sandwich. All right. The Harosset Sandwich. That is Devorah Tulishkin's wisdom. Thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate it and have a happy new year. I'm sorry to words always think So selfish to words that could describe Oh, actions of mine When patience isn't shows 
For our next segment, our colleague Stephanie Butnick went to sit down with Rabbi Sarah Luria, who runs Mikvah NYC, a community mikvah for people in New York City, and heard a story that Rabbi Sarah had to share. Hi, I'm here with Rabbi Sarah Luria. Sarah's going to share a story with us. It's about apology, forgiveness, these difficult themes that we deal with as these holidays approach. Last year began as a good one for apologies. I started with Beth. Beth is one of the best volunteers at the organization I run. And for a while, it had seemed like she had something on her mind, something about me. Sometimes it was an offhanded remark. Sometimes it was a criticism of me that seemed a bit harsh. Does she not like me, I wondered. Finally, I invited her for coffee. To prepare, I read the book Crucial Conversations, and I practiced with three separate people beforehand. I didn't want my defensiveness to get in the way of understanding our challenge together. We went to Irving Farm, my favorite coffee shop in Manhattan. We talked about kids, then summer camps, then we got down to business. What do you think is preventing us from working well together right now? I asked. And she answered, This organization prides itself on how it loves and supports its volunteers. And I know that's true for other volunteers, but I think you have overlooked me. I think because you see me as a strong, capable person, you and your staff forgot to love and support me. I looked at her, shook my head from side to side and said, Wow, I am so sorry. Beth, I am so sorry to have caused you pain. I just kept saying it. Wow, I am so sorry. The room's sounds fell away. The coffee cup sat untouched on the table. And I just repeated over and over, I am so sorry, Beth. That must feel horrible. I am so sorry. Apologizing to Beth was one of the most liberating experiences of my life. She was brave enough to tell me I hurt her. And all I had to do was say three words because I was really sorry, just really freaking sorry. Okay, awesome track record so far, one for one. At the time, I didn't know that my track record would then steeply decline. 5776 would become a year of hard conversations that ended without clear resolutions with my brother, my mom, my parents-in-law, my husband. After 33 years of avoiding tough conversations, my conversation with Beth had given me high hopes for this new honest communication. But still, sometimes I wish I had stuck with avoidance. The hardest of the hard conversations was with my father. My father has built a wall between him and the world. He rarely lets down his own defenses. He wants to play the part of hero. It hasn't served him well. He can't really make a living because he can't hold down a job because no one can tell him what to do. He screams and curses and says nasty things he doesn't mean. And then minutes later will actually say, why are you still mad about that? It's in the past. On this particular occasion, I was angry with him because he had dropped the ball while watching my young children. He left my five and a half year old and three year old at a restaurant by themselves for 15 minutes while he went back to the playground to grab something he had forgotten. Instead of pretending I wasn't upset, this time I needed to have an honest conversation. I planned on calling my father on Kol Nidre. 
He would never voluntarily step foot in a synagogue, and I had a nursing three-month-old and wasn't remotely interested in changing my baby's hard-won sleep routine. So I knew my father and I would both be home. I was looking for a dig-deep apology, a parent-to-child sorry, and I've known you for your whole life, and I've never really apologized for any of my atrocious behavior, sorry. But really, just an I'm sorry would have been fine. I practiced the conversation, first with my husband, then with a close friend, then with my husband again. We strategized, we imagined what he might say and how I might respond. The day came. My husband left for synagogue. My kiddos fell asleep way too easily. My stomach hurt from nervousness. It was clearly time to call him. Somehow he was still on my list of favorites on my iPhone, although those days certainly seemed numbered. He picked up, and after some small talk, I brought up the behavior with the kiddos and in a winding way asked him a question I had only ever asked my young children. Do you have anything you'd like to say to me? And then, just like I practiced, I stopped talking. It reminded me of a fundraising meeting when, after asking for a donation, you're just supposed to be quiet and let the other person answer, no matter how awkward and vulnerable the silence may make you feel. A few beats passed, and he said, I have nothing to say. I mustered up a, really, nothing? And he repeated, I have nothing to say. Sarah, thank you so much for sharing that story with us. It's interesting because there are two things going on, and I think um, it reflects a lot of what people go through this time of year. There's the, um, first of all, there's friends and coworkers versus family, which is something I do want to touch on. But the idea that you were both asking for forgiveness, but also asking someone to ask for forgiveness. So those are sort of the broad topics I'd love to focus on. The first story really fascinated me because you actually didn't know what you didn't know that you were going to apologize. You didn't know what you were going to apologize for. You were sort of feeling out the situation. What was that like? And, and hearing what she said, which was not a criticism of you, but a very real problem that was going on. What was that like to hear? It was a relief. It was really a relief because I was concerned we were going to go into the realm of organization and strategy and um, that kind of thing. And instead we went to the heart of the matter. And I feel like that's my sweet spot is the heart of the matter. And so instead of having to dig deeper to get to what was really true about why she was, there was a block for her, she was able to articulate it, access it and articulate it. And I was grateful for that. And also could see what she meant. And in my mind, it was like a cascade of, oh, all of these hard, quote, professional things are happening because there's an underlying emotional cause. And if she's willing to go there with me, how incredible is that? What a gift that is to me. And I want to respond on that level. This must happen a lot, right? This idea that we neglect the people who do the best work or the, or the people who don't seem to need us. And I think in, I imagine, organizational, workplace, even friendships, it's sort of an interesting thing to think about now, just sort of who am I possibly, who, who isn't the, you know, the squeakiest wheel? Who, who might I not be 
giving their due to. And I wonder, I mean, that to me struck me from the story as just a very universal lesson almost for all of us. I mean, obviously then the story gets quite personal and you go into, you know, an existing relationship you have uh, with your father and, you know, the most recent incident. And I, I wonder, was there no conversation after it happened? I mean, it's, it seemed like such a, a jarring thing to have happen. I think we develop patterns with our families about how, about our position in the family and how we respond to things generally. And generally, I let things go all the time. And I'm putting that in air quotes because I don't think we can emotionally let things go in that way. I think what I've learned this year especially is that they just sit there. And until you're able to articulate how it's making you feel or at the very least bring it up uh, as an issue, um, it just sits there and kind of piles on top of itself and keeps building and building. And so my pattern was, oh, (laughs) and then afterwards with my husband to talk endlessly about how could we have let this happen. And that just makes me feel worse. So I think the, the, the shift in a pattern that has been going on your whole life uh, is the scariest moment. And that's what I'm trying to articulate in this story is that for 33 years saying, it's okay, uh, you know, and behind the scenes feeling hurt and then going back to the same person and, and pretending it's okay doesn't serve the per- me, it doesn't serve you, it doesn't serve the relationship, it doesn't serve the organization, it doesn't serve the family. Uh, no one is really winning in that situation. And so that moment of, I couldn't even do it in person with him. I couldn't even do it in that moment, even though I knew in my mind it was time. And so it took all this practice and all this reflection to even get to the point where I could, as you said, ask to be apologized to, I think I was revving up for that my whole life. And the big difference is with, with Beth, you could sort of say, what is preventing us from working well together? There was an actual, you're saying, you know, these day-to-day functions, they're not working. What, what, how can we fix it? But with a family, you can't really say, why is this relationship not working? It's, it's much m- more opaque, I feel like, in a lot of ways. It's harder to sort of sit down and say, what's going on here? Which is why I think what you did was so brave and so amazing to sort of hit it head on. And I imagine quite difficult. You're right. It's harder. But I actually think you can use the same language with family in a way, not like what's preventing us from working together. But this, the way we've been working up until now isn't serving us or something a little bit less staid or a little bit less awkward. But if that's true, uh, it's not working for the other person too. I had this experience with someone else in my family recently, and I recognized that we both knew. I actually used the word gap. I think there's a gap between us and I'm upset about it. Are you upset about it? Do you want to change it? And it it wasn't so easy. And this also took a lot of rehearsal, (laughs) as it were. But um, but I think that the other person knows. And when you bring it up, 
they know what you're talking about. Maybe not on a conscious level, but in their gut, they know that something has been wrong or this pattern isn't working for both of you or for all of you if it's a bigger pattern. And you bringing it up may not make it better, but you can do it the way that you, I did it with Beth as much as with my dad. And we'll, of course, get to what happened with your father, but what's so cool to me, and this might sound silly, is that the Jewish calendar actually has this built-in confrontation date, because I know I would like to go my whole life without ever telling anyone what they've done to upset me, and I, uh, you know, sort of like what you mentioned, we'll let it fester, and it'll come out in inappropriate times, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. I'll apologize, yeah. and then I'll feel bad for apologizing, right. and then I'll feel guilty. Anyway, yeah, the whole cycle. Yeah. So it must make it easier for people to sort of, I guess, harder because you're forced to make these make these calls, these phone calls and, and these visits and actually confront issues. But I feel like so it was it's a very good idea. Like someone knew what they were doing when, when this when this happened, when these when these sort of traditions were started. I like that idea that someone knew what they were doing. I could not agree more. And sometimes when I uh, teach about the Jewish cycle, I actually think that it's built in every morning. Every morning you wake up and, and you, you, one can say, wow, it's wonderful that I'm awake and alive this morning. How am I going to start this day new? And then you have it every week on Shabbat. Wow, it's wonderful that, I'm, that I've had this hard, amazing, joyous, challenging week that just passed, and now I get a little break from that. And Rosh Chodesh, and we consider there to be four new years, and Rosh Hashanah, and Yom Kippur. Now, do people make those phone calls on a morning, on a morning-to-morning basis? Of course not. And of course we think of Yom Kippur more as the, quote, apology holiday. But I actually think that we have it built in even more to our to our Jewish life cycle system. So I feel like the calendar lets you notice and reflect. And then Yom Kippur asks you to push it a little farther. But that, but that you, I couldn't have just picked up the phone on Kol Nidre, stum, like period, without having done all this practice, so to speak, beforehand of accepting that this was true, noticing it as a pattern, and all the weeks before where all that work was being done. So you obviously prepared for this phone call with your father. Um, was what happened, um, was that part of the outcomes you expected? Were you sort of preparing yourself for him to be more combative or to say, you're right, I'm so sorry? Like, had you prepared yourself for various different outcomes? And was this one one of them? I was not sure what would happen. I like the idea of being prepared for... You know, I said that I prepared and I practiced and what would he say and what would he say? But no matter how much you prepare for a conversation like this, um, when you are that vulnerable and what I, my experience was being that vulnerable and putting my heart on my sleeve like that um, and getting a I have nothing to say in response was painful. When things are expected, they can still be painful. But I will say that I find this in all relationships. For me, being disappointed maybe is one of the hardest emotions. And so 
even though intellectually I was prepared for not getting an apology, emotionally, I think any human uh, would feel disappointed in a moment like that. So, I mean, the, the, the process we hear about is, you know, it's the holidays are coming up or whenever you are doing this, um, you ask for forgiveness. And part of it is someone gives it back to, you know, someone accepts your forgiveness. It's sort of a two-way system and it's sort of neat and tidy. And then everyone goes on and, you know, starts their new year and it is, you know, all wrapped up. What happens when with something like this, where it's not resolved? I mean, you, it's resolved in some way because it's, it was shut down in a lot, in, in, in a sense. What happens when there is no clear cut resolution? I just learned this year, um, this week, I just learned this week from Rabbi Sharon Ainsfeld Cohn. She's a dean of of Hebrew College. She taught that there's this understanding that you don't say a blessing, you don't say a bracha, when um, you are fulfilling a mitzvah that is between two people. So you don't say a blessing for Bikor Cholim visiting the sick, and you don't say a blessing for Hachna Sadorchim welcoming a guest. You you don't say a blessing for that, and one of the ways that she understood this that I love was that you're never exempt in human relationships. You're never yotze. You're never like, yep, I did that. I visited the sick. That's it for the year. I'm done with that blessing. Or even that's it for Shabbat or that's it for the day or whatever it is. You're never exempt from uh, a mitzvah that involves another human being. And so this myth of human resolution. I don't know why we think this. And I don't think Yom Kippur is about neat and tidy apologies. If it was, it wouldn't be so hard. We wouldn't have to pretend we were dead and wear white and and be in shul all day. Like if this was an easy, neat and tidy thing, then they wouldn't say that the gates are open through Sukkot. And I mean, we know that human relationships don't resolve they move on. They, they move, we move past. We're able to see more clearly. We're able to hear people in a different way. We're able to see ourselves in a different way. We're reaching towards perfection in the world. But I don't have any real illusions or hopes that we're going to get to that place. And so we keep trying to heal relationships, knowing that nothing will ever be fully, completely done because that's the nature of being human. Thank you so much, Rabbi Sarah Luria. If someone wanted to learn more about Immerse NYC, how would we do that? ImmerseNYC.org. Immerse, and then the letters NYC.org. And I am Sarah at ImmerseNYC.org with no H. Thank you so much for being here, and we're wishing you all the best in 5777. Thank you so much for having me.
Hey, J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a double header for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. For this extra special episode of Unorthodox, we have just one extra special Mazel Tov. It's uh, it's from Stephanie Butnick. Stephanie. I want to wish a Mazel Tov to my friend Ruben Cohen, who got engaged to Juliana Sorch last week. Uh, they're Unorthodox listeners. Their parents are Unorthodox listeners. Yeah. And I feel like anyone named Ruben Cohen has to be an Unorthodox listener. Like and, if, if we're not getting the Ruben Cohens of the world, we're, we're screwed. Well, the best thing is that I know Ruben Cohen because he was a roommate of Ben Cohen before Ben moved in with me. So it was Ben and Ruben Cohen no living relation. together. No relation. No relation. <laughs> and they said their landlord was so confused. <laughs> Mazel Tov to Ruben. Unorthodox is brought to you this week and every week by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can also find us for streaming at tabletmag.com slash unorthodox. We are edited this week by Shoshi Shmulevitz and produced by Alyssa Goldstein. Rabbinic supervision this week by Lester Holt. He didn't say much, but, you know, he stood there looking uh, looking moderatorly. Kosher slaughtering is by Boris Epstein, who seems to be part of the Donald Trump brain trust of Jews. Our website is tabletmag.com. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at TabletMag. Our music is by Golem. You can get our newsletter by sending us an email at unorthodox at tabletmag.com asking for the newsletter and we wish you a sweet and happy new year. Shalom, friends. I'm sorry for the rain. I'm sorry for the rain. I'm sorry for the rain that washed your house away. I'm sorry for the flood I'm sorry for the flood I'm sorry for the flood But that's what happens When it rains so much Lately I got carried away Lately I go out of my mind It happens all the time It happens all the time I'm sorry for the war Sorry for the wars. I'm sorry for the wars and that you fight them using my name. It wasn't in my plan. 
It wasn't in my plans It wasn't in my plans But plans are known to go astray Lately I get carried away Lately I go out of my mind No, that's not true, I'm lying It's happened for all time Everybody's looking around trying to find someone to blame And they be looking up and trying to see me Trying to see me Everybody's looking around trying to find someone to name And they say my name when they are full of pain Or when they are trying to go to sleep I'm sorry for the pain I'm sorry for the pain I'm sorry for the pains But they just came that way It was me who made it rain It was me who made it rain But that rain it came And it gave you someone to blame And you might as well blame So